0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We're in Washington this afternoon with my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength. Deb, thanks for being back.
1: I love being back. Thank you.
0: Uh, and we've got such a great show. We've got Rose Previtt from Compass Rose Restaurant and Maiden, uh, two restaurants here. Uh, Rose, we're thrilled that you're here. Thank you. Uh, and Louis Caldera, former secretary of the Army. Uh, Louis, I don't even know where to start in terms of your resume, president of University of New Mexico. California State Assembly, um, man of all trades, but all public service and serving a country in so many different ways. thank you, really good to be with you. Thanks for being here. One of the things I love about this show is thinking about kind of common themes emerge from our conversation. So here we've got a former Secretary of the Army and we've got a Sicilian um, Lebanese Uh um, uh, restaurateur. So you think, well, what's this all about? And as I've read about both of you and read interviews with you, articles, uh, about you, it seems to me that one of the things that um, really is a commonality is I feel like you're both so much about um, what I think of as kind of diversity, inclusiveness, uh, community building by reaching out and building just kind of a you know a larger world than it exists. And I know that uh, you, Rose, for example, uh, one of the formative uh, aspects of your career was traveling around the world. Uh, to some 30 different countries, and then building a restaurant that reflects that and creates an opportunity for people to experience the world. How did you start out as a restaurateur in the first place? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, thank you for asking. And I do want to say the uh, that Lewis did have a very intimidating resume. I uh, note I only sent mine this morning because I thought, oh my oh, goodness. Trust me, it's intimidating
0: not- <laughs> to all of us. <laughs> Who would not be intimidated by so, Lewis's resume? I feel
2: honored to be at the same table and to think that there's any correlation between our works because it's so unbelievably impressive. So it's very nice to meet everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, my, uh, my love for, for food started as a kid, as I know a lot of us who own restaurants say. Um, but my very Lebanese mother and Italian father raised me in a tiny little farm town in northwest Ohio um, where we were the most ethnic looking people. And, um, you know, you, you, you know from day one that you're different. And my mother's answer, she grew up in the Lebanese-American community in um, Detroit.
0: Your parents were born here?
2: My parents were born here. Okay. They met in Detroit where my dad was in school at Wayne State and so was my mom. And um, he moved her, uh, when he went to law school, to this little college called Ohio Northern University. And it's it's an amazing school. It's my alma mater as well. Um, But it is in a tiny little cornfield town. And immediately my mom was a fish out of water. And, you know, we came along and you notice pretty quickly that you stand out. And they made it very clear from day one that our lesson... You know, the lesson they were going to teach and what we were going to do was educate people about who we are through food. And that was from, you know, looking back on it, there, it was a beautiful lesson. At the time, in the sixth grade, when your locker smells like garlic and you're eating pita bread and no one's seen pita bread at this point because we're talking about like the 80s and 90s here and this is rural Ohio, um, it doesn't seem like such a great idea. So
0: you had a palpable sense of being different. Of From being day one. Other.
2: But the food was the connector. Yeah. And that was the thing. My mom was like, this is how we're going to get to them. That's how they're going to understand who we, who we are. And of course, they're having pizza parties and Mountain Dew and these things. And I'm having... Lamb sandwiches and spaghetti even spaghetti and meatballs was kinda of, you know, ours was an entirely different story. Our sauce had pig's ears in it and pigs' feet and things that people had you know never seen. And for years, you know, it was it was it was tough. But as we got older, we really started to to appreciate it. And then our friends by high school started to think it was really cool and they wanted to eat at our house. But that was ingrained from day one. So I think that and and just a sense of hospitality. Anybody was welcome any time of day. If we didn't have enough food, we'd make more. You know, everyone was welcome around the table. And that table was where all of our problems were solved. And, you know, if I fought with my brothers, we had to clear it up at the table. Uh, I don't even think I ate at a like a proper restaurant. I didn't have a hamburger in a restaurant until I was 10 years old. And that was on a school field trip. I snuck it and do the Catholic guilt that I was raised very well with. um, I felt really guilty about it. But uh, my parents' nutrition, healthy food, and food that depicted our culture was very, very much a part of of how I grew up. My dad is also, my my grandfather's kind of like American dream story was that he had an Italian grocery store in New Jersey that my dad didn't take over because he was the first one in the family to go to college. Um, But I think I get kind of my business and and love of selling food from him. And we brought all those values to this tiny little farm town in Ohio. But, you know, fast forward, I, I went to school. I went to to college, and I went to grad school here in the D.C. area. I went and got a master's in public policy at George Mason. But I always bartended or served, as we talked about earlier. I met my husband at a bar down the street from here. Um, what was well, the bar? Uh, at the time, it was Politiki. Okay. And it was on T- Capitol Hill. On Capitol yeah. Hill. I'm in southeast D.C., and I was interning for Human Rights Watch, and I was not even out of college yet. So I wasn't making any money, so I was waiting tables, and I was his waitress, and that's how we met. So all through school, working in the nonprofit sector, I always was in food. So I knew one day it would come full circle and I would, I would have my own place. But
1: did. not a chef. You...
2: Not formally trained. Right. My mom basically turned that love of food and culture into a catering business that we did out of our kitchen in Ohio. Wow. So I was always in, in selling food or, or, or making food, um, but I never was formally trained. And
1: appreciating it. Obviously. Totally a huge appreciation. Yeah. Right.
2: And I could make you to bully for like 300 right now. If you ask me, like it was, yeah. we would do weddings okay. and, and do parties. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what are um, you waiting for? But
2: that is not a formal French culinary training or anything like that. No, but yeah. a great appreciation for that.
0: And you your background was almost as political and policy oriented as Lewis turned out to be. Um, and I know, Lewis, um, I, I, I kind of get from what Rose is talking about, how she ended up as a restaurateur, how does somebody end up as Secretary of the Army? That can't be something that you set out to do.
3: Well, you, you don't start uh, setting out to do that. But, you know, I just you listen to Rose. Um, if I could just go back and tell a little, little story. So we were the same family, but in Southern California. My parents were immigrants from Mexico. We were the family that ate tortillas and frijoles and uh, chile rellenos and all this food that my friends, didn't eat because growing
0: up wearing growing
3: up in in Whittier California, okay. um, and at that at that time the the what today we'd call Latino Mexican American population was maybe just about five percent of the population. So it was you were, you you stood out. You were the you were the different uh, the different uh, family, uh, and it was really part of of bringing the family together. And it was also really great because when we would travel back to Mexico in the summers to visit extended family and stuff, there you'd even eat stuff that we didn't prepare at all. What what part of Mexico uh, my mom was from Chihuahua from northern Chihuahua, Mexico yeah. and my dad from from Zacatecas um, so but I you know but I grew up in this in this uh, spanish-speaking immigrant poor uh, struggling family and I really kind of understood that public po- education was going to be kind of my ticket out I needed to do well in school and that public policy that you know things like the the war on poverty um, were the Great Society. Those were programs that were very much uh, uh, being talked about, the civil rights movement, that uh, those are things that I believed in and wanted to be a part of, and that the way that you could make an impact was through public service. Uh, You know, it started with going to West Point, and and that was in part because West Point was free. So not only was it a great education, you could be an army officer, serve your country, but it was free. I mean, they paid you. So you'd
0: actually set your sights on West Point as a- As a young student?
3: Well, you know, as a uh, high school student, uh, I knew I wanted to go to college um, and I knew that my parents didn't have a nickel. Uh, My older sister was in college. They didn't have money for her. Uh, She was working and living at home and contributed to the family. So I, I looked around and said, Well, I need a full ride. And one of the places that I heard from was West Point and it said, You can serve your country. You can be an army officer, you can learn about leadership, we have an honor code, lots of things that appealed to me. Uh, He said, and by the way, we pay you to go to school here. So I'm like, that sounds like the right deal for me. Uh, But it was a great experience to to go across the country, far from home, meet uh, young, at the time, just men. Uh, women came two years later, but meet uh, students from all over the country who also wanted to to serve their country uh, in the military, and then and then while while I was really open to serving in the military you know there there was a part of me that wanted to serve closer to home wanted to work on issues of education and job creation and uh, improving public safety and all the kinds of things that you get to do when you're uh, when you're in the legislature so I, so i left after i left the army i went to graduate school and then i went back to california and it was not too long before i was running uh, for public office uh, and 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 in part because we have term limits in california so i was in the state legislature maximum three term, term limits at the time. And I was just elected to my third term. And I knew if I wanted to stay in public life that I needed to probably go work for President Clinton who'd been elected four years earlier uh, as he was going into a second term. And so I came out to Washington uh, to talk to folks that I knew in the administration about how do you get a job in the administration? And one of the jobs that was on my list, they said, well, what are you interested in doing? And at the top of my list was army secretary. And they said, that, that job is full. <laughs> uh, the incumbent and there's only one. is not going anywhere. <laughs> so let's look at something else. And I came to, actually to do a different job to run help run AmeriCorps, the president's uh, a service program. And uh, Togo West, who just uh, we just lost, uh, who, who just passed away, had been the Army Secretary and had been moved to be Secretary of Veterans Affairs. And the Army job came open. So I was already in the administration and my name got tossed in the in the ring and because I'd already was in the administration and I'd been through an FBI background check and I'd been confirmed by the Senate to one job it was really easy for them to kind of put you're, me up you're for you're you're making the next it one.
0: sound easier than it had to have been <laughs> <He> <laughs> just really like that's why oh, so I moved to Washington I <laughs> said I wanted to be army secretary yeah. and <laughs> it, you, you know
3: part of it is timing being at the right place at the right time and you know the fact that I had a military background that I'd been an army officer was a West Point graduate and knew a number of members, uh, both in the House and the Senate, who were on the Senate Armed Services Committee, who were vouched for me at that point. So all, all of it just kind of came together the right way. And I knew President Clinton, and I knew uh, Hillary Clinton, and, and so it all just kind of came together. I
0: have, I have a question about your Secretary of the Army role, and it's such a basic, even naive question. I'm almost embarrassed to ask it because I've been in Washington and I've worked on policy I hope for it's a long my time. question. I have a naive <laughs> one, too. I'm going to let well, you take the heat. You my <laughs> Question is the, the Secretary of the Army versus the Secretary of Defense versus the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What's the yes. Secretary of the Army do that's different from the other leaders in the military?
3: So, uh, so, so after World War II, there was a reorganization of the Department of Defense. And there was a notion that uh, we needed to be more integrated in in our national security defense uh, and and therefore that you needed a secretary of defense because prior to that you didn't have one. You had separate secretaries of the Army, which included the Army Air Corps, and the Navy, which included the Marine Corps. And so there were four services established. Air Force became its own service. Marine Corps, part of, still part of the Navy, under the Navy Secretary, um, and, uh, and, and there was the Secretary of Defense to be the leader of the services, but, but the department is so big that you need to have separate service secretaries as well as one uh, overall uh, defense secretary, and then that the, that, the, that the leaders, the uniform leaders of each of those services would comprise the Joint Chiefs, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs would be the president's senior military advisor. So when they're when the joint chiefs are wearing their service their their chiefs hats they are military advisors to the president but because in our system of government is about civilian control and civilian control of the military to be responsive to civilian authority you have to have this line that goes secretary of defense to the service secretaries and so they they really kind of operate in 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 parallel the the uniform side um, have tremendous commitment, patriotism, loyalty, understanding of what it takes to fight and win wars, uh, but it has to be responsive to military to civilian leadership, and that's what the the secretary and the secretariat, the civilian political appointees and leadership uh, represent uh, that help uh, um, you know guide guide the guide the services,
0: and and the uniform military is. Pretty good about buying into that.
3: A- absolutely, because they they believe in our constitutional system with this uh, separation, with this separation of power, and with civilian control. And in fact, it's what it's something we try to teach other countries that their military should be uh, under under uh, civilian authority. You know, so so for example, in Tur- Turkey, uh, the military considers itself a guarantor of the of the republic, and and so they have a they would. Uh, have a very different sensibility about uh, whether they should uh, intercede uh, if the president does something that they don't agree with. Um, And we see that in in countries in Latin America where uh, we don't want uh, juntas uh, uh, toppling uh, democratically elected governments, even if those governments um, are not uh, ones that uh, are necessarily serving the people as well as they might. We would prefer to see that that is changed through a democratic process. And so the military to really limit itself to providing national security and working with other countries to provide regional security and to address things like uh, counter drugs and the kinds of things that the military does uh, today, but not to involve itself in in uh, the political decisions of the country. We would never, of course, countenance countenance that. Uh, I hope in 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 this country that we would never countenance that. Um, and 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 so we so we have really I think norms that work very well um, that in fact we try to share with others.
0: We had both you had both spoken a little bit about food as something that in your neighborhoods and in your communities separated you out a little bit. But it seems like, from what I know about both cultures, that food was also very important in that culture, aside from making, making you maybe different from the other kids. Talk just about the culture of food, where you came from, and the degree to which it was family-centered and celebratory. Your background, Rose, is Lebanese Sicilian, uh, which is a got to be a very kind of passionate combination.
2: It, it's everything. You know, at the time, my mom's um, friends, they were all marrying other Lebanese guys. Um, but my mom, you know, fell in love with a Sicilian guy. But they realized so quickly, their cultures were not that different. The main connector being food, food and hospitality were exactly the same, even though they're two totally different countries. So that that bound them together very, very quickly. And they it was one of the biggest things they had in common. I think it's part of why they fell in love. And right away, food was going to be a big part of our lives um, growing up. So um, it played into everything. It was, it, 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 like I said, it's how we had to deal with um our, my brothers and, and how we sat around a table and, and fixed our problems and told the stories of the day. How, how big was your family? I have three younger brothers. Three younger so brothers. So there's four of us. Okay. And um, so yes, as much as it indicated that we were we were different from others, yes, both cultures are known for their food. And and but there was no food network back then. There was there were barely any restaurants where I lived. So it was still something kind of, of foreign. And all I wanted, like I'm sure you can understand, those, was like white bread and peanut butter. And <laughs> and this was just not something that was happening in my house.
0: <laughs> and um, Uh, How big was your family? I had uh, uh, five
3: brothers and sisters, so seven of us. Five brothers and sisters, or or, or, or six, five kids total. Four brothers and sisters. Excuse me, (laughs) I can't basic math. Um, But 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 that food was was really important. My my mom was a stay at home mom for a long time until she finally had to had to work. And and uh, and my dad sometimes was a factory worker who worked odd hours, so we didn't always necessarily have that. we able to have that meal together, but it but it was really important. And you know, in in the Mexican culture, I've, and I've noticed when I when I visit relatives in Mexico, food is how you show love to someone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you sit them down at the table, and you uh, cook eggs for them, and you bring something else for them, and you keep. Pushing food on them. And sometimes I look in horror and say, that person doesn't need more. <laughs> they don't need seconds or thirds or another helping or heaping it on the plate. But because the person is showing you love by putting all that food on your plate, you just keep eating it, right? And so, you know, so you have to learn how to how to make better choices about those kinds of things, and, and sometimes politely be able to say, "I really can't have another bite." Um, but but you know, but I now think about it; it's something I cook breakfast for my kids every single morning. I've done you know um, a, a warm, hot breakfast, and we have family uh, family dinner together. So it's something that we've read really over uh, as much as we can, even though I, I travel a lot. But when, when we can, you know, we, we turn down uh, invitations to do other things in the evenings so that we can have dinner together as a family. And I think one of the really big challenges for families today, especially low-income families, is that both parents are working and both parents are sometimes working two and three jobs and that opportunity to have a meal together has disappeared for a lot of, for a lot of people. Um, so then it ends up being fast food. It ends up being cheap food. It ends up being, you know, what, uh, whatever it is that, that, uh, that, that people can fend for. And so you lose that opportunity to, you know, build the glue that a family takes to be resilient when the challenges come.
2: I'm glad you said that. If I could just say one thing, I, I did want to point that out. My mom um, was able to not work with us. So being a mom and and a cook was her full-time job other than the catering out of our house. But my husband came from a very different family, a single mother who was in graduate school in Pittsburgh um, while he was growing up. And he you know, he tells stories of getting, like, SpaghettiOs out of the can and, and, and other things. So the very first—probably the first year he started coming back to visit my parents in Ohio, he said, Rose— your family, we never eat out. It's kind of weird. And I said, Oh no, you don't understand. They're they're feeding you because they like you. Like they thought they'd be insulting you if we go to a restaurant. This is the greatest gift that we can possibly give you. But that was not something that he grew up with, and it was something very different.
1: Bill, Billy and I are jealous whenever we hear these stories of these wonderful family meals. You know, we we have the most loving parents, but we
0: had a wonderful family, but not wonderful, wonderful meals. We are going to talk about more than food, but I do have one more <laughs> no. food question, which is, you know, as we're talking about kind of food as love, and you're a restaurant. Tour and I've read that one description for Compass Rose is international street food. I don't know how accurate you consider that, but what, what kind of experience? What are you? What What are you trying to create for your guests and customers there? What are you having? What do you want them to walk away with?
2: Oh well, no, street food is 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 correct. And if you've been there, you also know that Compass Rose is actually in a, in a two hundred year old house. It's right off of Fourteenth uh, Street here in, in Northwest DC, and it's. It's meant to make people feel at home. Um, We'd like to say we kind of localize global. It's very cozy. It's a very cozy place. It's meant to be cozy. It's meant to be homey and was meant to be neighborhood. But we wanted you to feel, though, like that you were somewhere else or create a memory or remind yourself of a trip that you've taken. Um, And when I, I'm never happier than when I walk through the restaurant and I hear people talking and saying, Oh, I haven't had this since I was in Turkey or, Oh, this reminds me of when I was in Mexico and it is international street food. So at any given time we have about 20 countries represented on the menu. And that was directly inspired from when I was living in Moscow with my husband, as he was a foreign correspondent for, for NPR, he was covering Moscow in the former Soviet union. And I, uh, You know, I have this Mediterranean blood, so Russia and I do not agree so well. (laughs) I told you about that Steelers game where I was really cold. (laughs) Well, you can imagine that Steelers game, but for three years while I lived in Moscow, and I was not a happy camper. So we traveled a lot, and we did go to about 30 countries in three years. And when after an epiphany in Siberia, which if we have time and you want to hear about it, I, I can tell you, but literally I was on a train in Siberia. What
0: happened? No, we got to hear.
2: Well, David, we, we did the Trans-Siberian Railroad from Moscow to of Vladivostok and David did a series of stories on and, it. And he, how long
0: a trip is that?
2: Well, it can be four or five days if you don't stop. But we were stopping all along the way, so it took about three and a half weeks. He was doing interviews with people. It was, it was a fascinating, it was truly a journey. When you're on this train, I mean, you're just inching forward every single day. It's amazing. I'm glad I did it once. Were you thinking
1: about the <laughs> restaurant while you you were traveling to all these countries. Was that already in your head? That you I've were been thinking open a
2: more about what the heck am I going to do with my life when I get back. I Didn't to mean America. to interrupt. That, I just wanted. No, to, no, yeah. no. I'm glad because it wasn't. I didn't. Was intentionally
1: this, inspiring the restaurant?
2: Not necessarily. I wasn't going on this vision. I was working um, for the New York City Council, um, doing policy work uh, before I left. So I kind of thought I you know, go back into that, but then I didn't work for three years and I was having a crisis and you know, we're getting ready to go back home. This is one of our last big trips before we move back to the States in 2012. And really, when you are in Siberia for a few days, I mean, you really... You start to understand the Russian writers and those big sad novels, and you think, wow, now I understand you guys better. I am seeing my soul, my mortality. And the one thing they taught me, there's a lot of fatalism, right? Like the opposite of America, where we're like, we can be secretary of the army just because we want to. We can be president of the United States. This is what we're taught. Definitely culturally, it's different there. And and often it was like, well, we're probably going to die tomorrow, so, you know, let's just do what we want today. And I'm thinking, wow. But... The way that did, I I use that for inspiration. That that has its positives. Well, I mean, the inspiration was, you know what? I I did say deep down, as I'm examining, again, my mortality and my soul, um, what really makes me happy is food and serving food and making people feel at home. And so why don't I finally do this restaurant? I always thought I'd have, but I kept saying, I'll do it later.
0: That was the epiphany on the train? Yeah, because then I said, well,
2: later is now. I might just die tomorrow like the Russians tell me. Um, so why don't I just go so home we can and do thank it. them
0: for Compass Rose? <laughs>
2: I do, and David reminds me all the time because every time you complain about how cold you were, Compass Rose would not be here otherwise.
0: <laughs> so um, Also, want to talk a little bit about um, leadership because I know you, Lewis are an expert in it, and you Rose have to lead in terms of your business. I mean, you're not yes. just uh, you know the 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 cook and the chef and the designer, but you're a leader to a team there. Where did your leadership uh, principles? come from? What was the genesis for you getting interested? You're teaching leadership now yes. at George Washington University.
3: You know, it really, uh, it, it was one of the things that I was, one of the reasons I, I went to West Point was because they said we are intentional about teaching leadership and developing leaders for our country and that the expectation was a lifetime of leadership, whether it was in uniform or, or out of uniform. And it's a place where presidents had gone there and generals have gone there and things. Uh, And and so that was sort of part of the start of the of the journey. Um, But 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 as I've had a chance to be in a number of leadership roles myself and observing a lot of people in leadership, you know, you really sort of start to think about um, what what it is that leaders do about uh, servant leadership, this model of servant leadership where it's not about you, it's about uh, the people you're trying to serve or the mission of the organization that you get a chance to lead. Today it's it's trying to teach that to young people um, who have those kinds of aspirations also to be leaders. There are many, many opportunities to, to be someone who is ethical, principled, and willing to work. And that, that that's one of the other things I try to instill is leaders work hard. They have to be. They have to be competent in the thing that they are trying to do, which requires both continuous study and learning, and mastering the issues, uh, and and working hard. But but at the same time, also being attentive to people, um, because you know you can push yourself really hard, but you have to recognize that people have lives, they have families, they have uh, things that they want to accomplish, and so it's not just about. Getting them to kill themselves for you—it's about hey, we're building a team here. We're all in this together, and let's be inspired by what we're trying to accomplish.
0: Well, let me just ask: How do we square this notion of work-life balance that we all strive for? And you talk about living an, on a, an authentic life in which you really get to fulfill—you know—a variety of your—you know—ambitions. Uh, how do you square that with just the basic? need that so many families are facing today where they've got to work two or three jobs and they can't be around for their family?
3: So we have to have work policies that include things like uh, minimum wage and, and better better family support so that family is really a an obligation of the entire community taking care of children, not just of you had them. It's your it's your job. Okay. You know there are a lot of families that are struggling out there, and so the more that we can do to help support them, whether it's through the schools, whether it's through community groups, uh, whether it's through policies that uh, better support uh, families, um, are going to create environments in which uh, you know children can can grow up with more of a sense of of who they are, and that this country and these opportunities belong to them as well. They're just not for other people.
0: And in the restaurant. Does that ring true as a leader for you, Rose?
2: Oh so much of what you said, yeah. and I think what you're saying about really looking to what your staff needs and and, and teaching them about it in, in my business with with the customer, what the guest needs is actually the priority. Um, and I didn't realize you know, I just recently opened a second restaurant and I think I underestimated the effect of doubling my staff. Uh, so instead of being in charge of 30 people, now it's 60. And, and and leadership comes into play every single day. And I think any entrepreneur or small business owner knows that reality hits really hard, that if you don't get out of bed and do it, nobody's going to do it for you. And you have to inspire everybody else to get out of bed and, and do their job too.
1: And make sure that they're feeling inspired by each other. Mike Friedman was just here oh, right. uh, the other day from the Red Hen, and He was talking about leadership and how The staff and the employees are really kind of the the number one thing and Mm -hmm. to make sure that they're feeling connected. And something that we talk about a lot that he talked about was, um, you know, feeling like you're connected to something larger than yourself. Which I thought was great. And that's great we put in Yeah. So he, you know, the the leadership piece for him was a very intentional piece, and I'm sure I'm sure that's when you have a successful restaurant. Now you have two.
2: When did when did Maiden open? Just four months ago. Okay. So, so it's brand new. Yeah. And, he, and he knows. I mean, they they run great operations, and it it, it is it's, it's constantly inspiring them and and getting them excited yeah. about leading each other. And it's it, it's never easy. It, it really isn't.
0: Uh, one of the things you said, Lewis, that uh, was that resonated with me in terms of like the balance that a leader has to strike, and I'm, I'm thinking of something that was said about Debbie and me. Uh, when we. So we've been at Share Strength for 34 years. We, of course, live it and breathe it, right? We started it, and so we're always thinking about it. And we do these um, uh, reviews where our staff uh, do these kind of, you know, annual employee surveys. And I remember in one of them um, somebody had said um, just because – Uh, Billy and Debbie have no boundaries between their personal life and their professional life doesn't mean that I want to live that way. And it was really, it was interesting... I remember that comment. Yeah, it was interesting. And we found that person. No, I mean, it was a really good call out because we do push more out of enthusiasm and excitement for what we're doing rather than in any kind of like, you know, taskmaster kind of way. But you got to remember that other people have, you know, um, lives as well.
1: You know, and also... You know, you have to really understand what listening means. It's not just hearing and waiting to respond. And customizing leadership and management is critical. You know, every single person has a different strength. And I think a good leader understands what that is and and bolsters that strength um, and tries to keep them, keep the weaknesses at bay as much as they can and make sure that they're leveraging the strengths of every person. That requires, that's not one size fits all. And I would imagine same in the army, same in a restaurant. Certainly that's the case at Sheriff's right?
3: And there there are, you know, and there are some generational differences. You know, young young men today want to have complete lives. So they also want to be involved in their kids' lives and they want to work out and they want to have avocations and stuff. And I have friends who are saying like, you know, the young... The young lawyers in my firm, the, I don't quite get them. They don't work as hard. They don't have that partner fear that we used to have. Right? <laughs> they don't just stay here all night long. And it's like, you know, actually, that's a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, you know, and then it's sort of a mix of like, we, get, we, you know, how do we set expectations about what needs to happen because we're in a customer service industry and we have a professional obligations, but also, you know, let, let, let's, you know, that, that does make sense. And the young women... Want to be able to have careers that don't shortchange them because they also have, in some cases, these kinds of family uh, commitments uh, as well, and it's probably a better world if we can build one in which uh, people can be, you know, complete, authentic human beings and not just, you know, totally focused on on uh, on work.
0: I said at the beginning that I feel like you're both you both do a lot in your lives to bring cultures together, uh, and it feels like this is a time politically to me, where that's more important than ever. There are so many forces, so many polarizing forces that seem to be pushing various cultures apart, whether it's, um, you know, you think of hillbilly elegy versus mm-hmm. uh, immigration. Um, do you have a, a palpable sense of doing that in in your business, Rose? It, I mean, it just feels like it's so implicit in everything you're doing. And then I know, Louis, you've been very active in trying to think about how do we, particularly with the Hispanic community, the Latino community, how do we make sure that that community has every opportunity that should mm-hmm.
2: have? I It's an inter- it is an interesting time. And I think also to have restaurants in Washington specifically probably is a little bit different than an experience. Maybe someone right. in another right. city would have because we're so close to it. And our clientele is working in politics day in and day out. Um, and I, I, it's been a fascinating and unique experience, I think, to have restaurants in Washington. But I think Maidan is probably a very specific example of what you're talking about.
0: This is your new restaurant. The new Maidun. restaurant
2: um, is only, is this, the, this is my soul food. So this is where the Lebanese comes in. And um, we're doing only food from North Africa, the Middle East, Georgia, and Iran. And it just so happened that we planned a summer. You must
1: be the only one in town doing that pretty
2: much? Um, those countries, those specifically, countries. yes. Middle yes. Yes. East,
1: no, but... Right. There's and,
2: definitely a couple other like, very specific Lebanese restaurants or Aft- Greek or Turkish, yeah. but we're bringing them together. So in, yep. in, in essence, um, they are similar but very different in many ways. And um, the name of the restaurant, Maidan, <laughs> actually is, has Arabic roots. It means a square or a gathering place. The first time I heard it was in Kiev. There's a very famous Maidan. I thought, what is this word? And as I looked into it, I realized it's used throughout Eastern Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and India. So my friends in Hindi know this word. It's pronounced differently, but it means the same thing. And it's always meant a square, a gathering place. And I've always felt- Town
0: square. Town square, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the
2: Maidan is like the center of Kiev. They have- you know, public mornings there. They had a revolution there a few years ago. And I I think these public spaces are very popular in the rest of the world, but we have less of them in the United States. I think the first time I remember in my lifetime, people running into the streets for a joint public show of of emotion was when um, Obama won the first time. And I was in New York and people just fled to the streets. And I'd never seen that before. But I think you see that more often in other parts of the world. Um, you know, when the World Cups are won or when people just run to the centers or they meet in the squares. And I thought in America, I wish we had more of these spaces uh-huh. where people could just come together. But I feel like bars and restaurants are the one acceptable place. You heard me already say I met my husband in a bar. You know, you hear that story a lot because that's the one place you're allowed to introduce yourself to strangers. You're allowed to make friends. You're allowed to forget politics for a minute and you're allowed to come together. And I, I hope I create those spaces. And I think a lot of restaurants do. And uh, Maidon specifically with its Middle Eastern roots um, definitely ha- gets a Question more often because we planned our summer research trip last summer to Morocco, Tunisia, Lebanon, Western Georgia, and Turkey. Right as all of the banned countries came up and all this and a lot of people asked us, did you do that on purpose? It just so happens that right now these are some of these places are considered bad to go to. And I think one of the mandates we have and my staff knows very well. And one of the reasons I think they, like you said, really have buy in is because they feel like they get to to show the world some very positive parts of these countries that I think on the news We're hearing only negative things about you think Lebanon right now, you think ISIS, you think Tunisia, you think Arab Spring, all of these negative connotations. When we were actually welcomed into strangers homes with open arms, I mean, people, we had no idea who they were. We cooked with them and we left as friends and we hope that we're creating that space um, here. And all the recipes on the menu are taken from um, from that trip, from women that we cooked with, and we did mainly cook with women um, entirely. And I, I had one beautiful memory of this Tunisian woman who brought us into her home, and she said, "My mother's generation wanted to be French. They, they wanted to be fancy, and they thought being Tunisian and cooking Tunisian food was almost you know pedestrian. They, they were, they were above that because they were of a higher class." And she said, "But I." I cooked with my grandmother because I wanted to learn the Tunisian recipes, and I want to teach you only Tunisian meals you know, today, and I hope that you'll take it back to the States. And she said, if you go to the restaurants, you won't have this because only men are working in the restaurants. But the women, we're home making this food, and, mm. and that's what we want you to take back with us. And so um, we have some Tunisian-inspired dishes on the menus at both restaurants in her honor, and we had a beautiful day. You're smelling, you know, you're, you're making harissa is everywhere in Tunisia and in Morocco. You're smelling peppers and onions and garlic. Harissa is that red Reddish. Pepper based paste. Pepper yep. based paste. It can be yeah. a little hot. It can be mild if you want it, but most people prefer it a little bit hotter. We have it in the restaurants, and they were just so excited. And of course, everyone's is better than it. The Tunisians is better than the Moroccans. The Moroccans, everyone's very proud of their harissa. But we're tasting these spices and, and we're smelling these beautiful things and in home kitchens that are isn't very it, tiny.
1: Isn't it the case that the, the, the best food is so simple, right? So, you know, all these fancy, fancy dishes, which I enjoy too. But the really basic food from Mexico or Lebanon or Syria, is very basic ingredients and very basic foods.
2: One hundred percent.
1: And everybody's expecting something really fancy when the best stuff is just like
2: no, I mean what it, they do. At Compass Rose, it's street food. At Madonn, it's grandma food. And we really think those really beautiful simple things, um, as you were saying earlier, Billy. The the street food is the great equalizer. It is where everyone, um, whether rich or poor has their favorite stand in the town, and that's one of the few places you see everyone come together over food is on the streets at a very humble, cheap stand, but there's usually a national dish that everyone knows is the best at this stand, and you'll see rich people and poor people during the day, and I just felt like it really brings everybody together, and I want Compass Rose to feel like that, so we want to recreate that, and made Maidan, we we cook with grandmas, and we reproduce their recipes. I
1: laugh, and you'll you'll relate to this, I laugh about elote, because mm. it's, you know, now right. it's in restaurants, right. it's yeah. like, right. you know... Twelve dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like it's on the street. Every, what is every it? street. What is it? it's the corn, corn that's you know <laughs> that's you know, smothered in the lime and the salt and the chilies and the cheese. But it's literally in every Socolo and right. every plaza in the country for like pennies. But it's like the big dish here. Oh, yeah. And
2: yeah. ours is kebabs. Now, mind you, a lot of people will say, well, this was a lot cheaper when I had it in Lebanon than it is yeah. here. And I thought, well, I'm really sorry. Their rent is a lot less. But, um, but yes, yes. But kebabs and simple dips and spreads and things that just fill the tables in Lebanon, these little tiny dishes, have these beautiful different flavors is what we're trying to recreate. Yeah. But things you can make in your own kitchen. And some restaurants you go into, that's not the case. You have French technique and very rich things. But we kind of prefer the more simple and just base everything on bright flavors.
0: I think your next business, in addition to the restaurants, should be like, you should just take people like us with you. As you travel overseas, awesome I sign to. up, I pay. I want to go with you.
2: I'd be happy to have you. Oh, I'm I mean, tonight, guys. Let's I, just leave and go over. For a lot of people,
0: <laughs> like the closest you could get to Lebanon might be going to Medan. I, well, I, and,
2: and Iran is a perfect example. Um, I, I will say that we've had an amazing outpouring of love from the, the Persian-Iranian community in um, the D.C. area, which I had no idea was so big. Mm-hmm. We only have a couple Iranian dishes on the menu, but people are coming in droves, and it's been so exciting to meet them, and they're so excited. Many of whom have not been home for years and years. And years, and to, to get these flavors gets them so excited, and then they're able to. They come to us, and they tell us about growing up in Iran, and and it's beautiful. And of course, it was the one country we couldn't go to. Um, after looking at it, it was either with a, with the cost and the complication. It was either go to just Iran or five countries, and so we decided we really wanted to bring show the the best aspects of as many places as we could, but we would love to go back. So we've been cooking with a chef here in D.C., an Iranian woman who's amazing and has written some amazing cookbooks on Iranian cooking, and she's been helping us.
0: So I have a feeling you could get people excited about almost any combination of of restaurants. (laughs) Uh, Louis, talk a little bit about your work in terms of um, this issue of how we bring cultures together.
3: Sure. You know, I I think um, one of the great things about being an Army secretary is you get to travel the whole world, and you get to see soldiers who are serving our country all over the world. You know, they're in a hundred different countries every day of the year. And you see them in hotspots and you see them in places where what they're doing, nobody even knows uh, that they're there, but they're there and they're great ambassadors of our country. And one of the things I loved about it is that the tremendous diversity of that force, right? They're from every background, African-American, Latino, Asian, um, poor white kids from, from rural parts of our of our country um, every kind of background that you could imagine men and women and and to me they they're like these great ambassadors because that's the strength of our country i, I think we have a great country that provides tremendous leadership uh, throughout the world and we shouldn't forget that because sometimes we see the polarization and we think we're you know we're completely divided part of that is because the people who are the most extreme ends kind of capture the media and we hear a lot from them and we don't hear so much from people who are, you know, just trying to raise their families and, and be responsible uh, citizens. Um, but I think that that the diversity that our nation has is a tremendous asset. And the truth is it's only going to grow in diversity because of the smaller, smaller planet that we occupy. And that's a good thing. Uh, Over the long run, it's a good thing because it means that as long as we're true to our principles of equality and that people can come here from anywhere and can uh, develop their talents through education and who have something to contribute, can contribute something, uh, then, then that's what we need to do. The challenge for us, for our country, is that many of those uh, young people, those diverse young people—Latino, African American, and and poor white kids in Appalachia and other places—don't uh, have that opportunity to develop their talents. So we're we're wasting the talents of a lot of people because uh, because we have not uh, improved the quality of education and because we haven't made it possible for them to have things like food security and health care and. Uh, Economic opportunity, jobs uh, for them to fulfill and to see hope and a future. If we can unleash that potential, I, I think that's just all to the better for our country. Um, so, you know, so I've been working on that in part on trying to say, look, Latinos are going to be the largest minority, already are the largest minority in this country, are going to be 40% of its population within 20 years. The leadership. Of a lot of our country in every walk of life, whether it's politics, business, arts and culture, uh, whatever it is, uh, has to, you know, some uh, a fair share of it has to come out of the Latino community. So we have to take some of these really bright kids who have the potential to not just be college graduates, but go on to professional schools and uh, start businesses and do all these things and unleash it because a lot of it is being wasted right now.
1: Louis, I um, I always knew that the military had a strong culture. I mean, you know, I I knew that. I didn't realize until we've had a couple of guests on representing different parts of uh, the army or the military, just how um, I guess how emotional their connection was to each other and to the military. I was that was something that I learned about it. And can you can you sort of uh, explain why why that is? I mean, is it just sort of the the common bond of serving, or what is it about the military that really binds these people together so intensely?
3: I think it's, you know, it, so there is a, a socialization process uh, when you first come into the military um, where you start learning the histories and tradition and about your unit, and where there's a lot of emphasis on um uh exercises and things that build teamwork. We really learn to depend on the person next to you. And the more that you buy into that idea of your unit and its uh, its heritage, it's spree, it's uh your your obligations to your fellow uh your fellow service member, um you know, the, the the more you start to to gel and be cohesive as a unit, uh, one of the nice things about the military is it's, it's it's a place where you know everybody kind of wears their their pay scale on their sleeve, right? It's not about uh, uh, bonuses or this that or the other thing. It's just mm-hmm. all about the mission, um, and 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 and, it, and it's unique because you know that that the job that you're doing, you believe that the job that you're doing uh, is important to defending our country and and uh, and its interests in the world. Uh, and, and, uh, and you're, you know, fewer and fewer people today have that experience of having served. So I really admire these young people who enlist and who, or become officers and, and serve in the military because they're the ones in their generation who said, Hey, someone has to stand up and do this and it's going to be me. And so you, you start out by having a group of people who are interested in service. And then you mix with that, this, uh, idealism about, uh, about what they're doing, uh, and the reality of that. What can you tell us about
0: the condition of people coming out of the military? So, if you're not a West Pointer, if you're not Secretary of the Army, if you're an average man or woman who served the country, uh, do you come out with opportunity, or do we need to do better there?
3: Well, you know, honestly, I think we need to do better. When when I when I was Secretary, I started an online education program for soldiers. um, That you know, today all the services have it, but the reason for doing that because I wanted uh, our soldiers, whenever they leave the service. And whether that's after four years or after 10 or 20 years, to have not just the pride of having served, but marketable skills um, so that they could go into the civilian world and provide for their families. Uh, And so that included degrees and included certifications, technical certifications, and other kinds of things. Um, And so... Uh, and I thought, you know, we really have to improve how soldiers and their family members, by the way, not just soldiers, but spouses and and, uh, and children as well, get really good education while they're in the service. Because the truth is that some of the ones who leave um, may have the GI Bill. But they have family, they have families and family responsibilities, and they can't go be full time students, right? So some of them can, but many of them can't. Many of them aren't taking advantage of that educational uh, benefits that they uh, that they earned while they were uh, serving, uh, simply because it's too hard to kind of make it all work.
0: Rose, you had uh, talked about, and I joked about you got, were almost on a path to uh, working on policy and politics the way <laughs> Lewis has, but um, and you're obviously completely fulfilled by two of the most exciting restaurants here in the nation's capital. Uh, But do you miss it at all? Do you ever think about, um, uh, you know, work in the policy or the political space?
2: Um, Well, I joke that actually to run a business in the District of Columbia, you might as well have a policy degree because (laughs) um, (laughs) if you do your own permitting and things like I do, it actually comes in handy. Um, So there is a lot of red tape for us. So my degree has definitely helped me navigate that. Um, And absolutely, I, you know, I I actually got involved in the Restaurant Association here in D.C. because they do do a lot of um, political work on issues affecting businesses. And so I get to testify before the city council from time to time and use that side of my brain. And and all year long, there's things that are are happening. And so I, I do do it that way. And I love being involved. I mean, we have to be involved in our community. It's, it's a neighborhood, Both are neighborhood restaurants. I live in the neighborhood. I live at 14th and T. So we go to A&C meetings. We go to neighborhood meetings. And so I love local politics. And, and
1: your clientele has to just be inspiring you all the time.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, especially I mean, at Compass Rose. I mean, we get the State Department, the Foreign Service, embassies. I mean, everyone that comes in is just fascinating. But I really, I really believe in local government. When I got my degree, I didn't actually, no offense, didn't want to work for the federal government. I always wanted to work in cities. -hmm. Um, I might be the small town girl thing. I really love, you know, especially just city politics. It's crazy. It can be more brutal, I think, sometimes than the hill um, local politics. So I, I never want to be not involved in my community and 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 the
1: impact feels like you know it's it's closer. You you know
2: well, and that was the other thing. I'm very results oriented. Mm -hmm. That's why I like this business. Like you do a thing and you see a result and policy work can be hard. You work on a thing for a really long time and you might never see it, you know, but in city politics you do see it a little bit faster. And I liked that about it. Um, George Mason was a great place to go to school because I was able to intern with the city council here at the same time. It's just funny to be on the other side now. You know, you go to the office and you think, I know that council member made that law because I helped council members write those laws. And I really think in practice this is a bad decision, you know, but now I'm the one sitting there begging for my permit or my license or whatever. And that's what they should have had us do in policy school. Go down there and see what it feels like. To have the laws applied to you, right, right. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see it from both sides. But I hope that I'm still making a difference in the community every day. And we definitely hire a lot of DC residents and um, do a lot of fundraisers and give back to the community as much as we can.
1: Okay. Right. You no, know, I was just wondering, uh, Lewis, as you were talking about how close you've been to the ground on seeing some of the issues that we deal with around hunger and nutrition, and you know what your experience has been with soldiers who are just not—they're just not fit to serve
3: around this issue. Well, you know, and and uh, if I can just deviate that question slightly, you know, today co- on college campuses, um, there was a study that you know uh, more than half of students have food insecurity just, issues. Fifty percent big, of them, I just
1: read a big piece about it.
3: Yeah, fifteen percent of college students are homeless. All right, there, there are college, there are university campuses now that have homeless shelters, and many that now have um, food banks. Uh, have and, food banks yeah. um, because it's because it's a it's a huge issue. that the day when you could you know kind of. Pay your way through college and work and go to school is long gone, just because it's so expensive today, right? So, um, so you know, th- those are those are um, uh, th- those are things that limit people's ability to fulfill their human potential, and so that's why it's important to try to do things that help address those needs, and sometimes those needs are hidden. Um, so, the student isn't willing to tell you why they're falling asleep in your class, but the reason they're falling asleep in your class is because they're working a graveyard shift. Uh- You know, so you you, so, you know, it is it is important to to try to find ways to to address these issues and to try to address, uh, you know, students can't learn if they're if they're hungry. And uh, so, you know, whether 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 that's in elementary school or whether it's on a college campus, it's a it's a similar kind of issue. Plus, we know in in terms of brain development that it's also important to have a nutritious, uh, uh, you know, not not just to tap down the hunger, but to actually eat things that are good for you.
0: And so much misunderstanding in this country. I, mean, I guess one of the issues we deal with constantly, Debbie and I and our whole team at uh, Share Our Strength, is people not knowing the extent of hunger, certainly not even imagining that there could be yeah, hunger it's invisible. Yep. Uh, on college campuses. I know that uh, you, Rose, have talked about food as a great equalizer, yet we have this inequality in our country when it comes to food. We're about to have a big battle. Uh, around food stamps again, around the the SNAP program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and there are so many. There's so much mythology about who is receiving this type of assistance and whether they need it or not, and uh, it just seems like you know this is a. It's almost like a culture war issue that circles around every few years, but it's and the just fraud, kind which of is very, tragic, really very small, which is yeah, like well, it's almost, almost completely right. been wrung out of the program now. But you always hear that from the other side, like there's
1: so much fraud involved, and the the truth is there's not.
0: Uh, I'd read somewhere, Lewis, that your your family had actually experienced food insecurity when you were young. Um, You probably are a a great example of somebody who has, you know, the return on investment to our nation by investing in your family (laughs) has obviously been profound.
3: Well, you know, and I and I, I so I talk about that, and I talk about it to students because I want them to know that it's a, that it's not something to be ashamed of, right? When that's certainly not something you would ever I would have ever said when I was uh, at that time in high school or something like that to say, oh, you know, we, we don't have enough food to go around. We, uh, um, you know, we have to go to the back of the of the uh, grocery store to see if they threw out any produce or something, you know, um, but. Um, but it's important, and it's really important that some of these uh, students who have grown up in these kinds of circumstances, including you know like kids in foster care and other kinds of things, that um, uh, have very low uh, college going rates, uh, college completion rates, um, that we find ways to, um, uh, to 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 help them develop their 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 full human potential. That the other alternative is to have a lot of angry. Uh, uh, young people who become a you know uh, do the kinds of things that end up uh, become a burden on society or They're disenfranchised a or, or something. Become disenfranchised. Um, and uh, and so so I th- so I think you know I think if you go so when I when I went into into politics I, I I like to say that the reason I did is to be a problem solver not the partisan stuff is if that's all it's about you know to being a partisan warrior stay home don't don't do it right. But if you're in public life, ninety percent of the stuff that actually gets done at the city, local government, state level, is about people trying to solve problems, and whether that's trying to make education work better, or trying to repair roads and bridges more frequently, or you know, even uh, uh, you know, put in stop signs and things uh, that. Uh, Protect pedestrians from from getting killed. I mean, those solving problems is why you should. I hope is why you would want to do these kinds of jobs, and figuring out you know how can we be true to our our, our founding principles and truly uh, deliver on the promise of equality. And the promise of equality means you have to have some equality of, of those basic opportunities to get a good education and to be able to develop your talents.
0: You've kind of described the difference between public service and politics right that's public service as it as it should be um we need to wrap up but tell us what's next for each of you uh rose i'm assuming that uh maidan is gonna keep you very busy (laughs) as a four-month-old baby new enterprise for you but uh anything else in the works that we should know about
2: it's yes at four months it is an infant so um we we don't want to do anything else too quickly, but. The, I don't know if you, we didn't get a chance to talk, I I do a local show here called Check, Please, DC.
0: Right. It's on WETA? Yes.
2: And uh, what I really love about it is we showcase uh, restaurants around the, the area, so- deep suburban mom-and-pop shops to the places on 14th Street that we're more familiar with. And what's been great is it's out of Chicago. It's existed in the Bay Area for a while, but we just started it this year. The first six episodes just completed. And the next six, um, to finish the first season, start airing April 16th. So tune in Monday nights okay, at nine so o'clock. Kind of and what I check, really love, please, is check DC. please, DC on <laughs> channel twenty six. And what I again, it's just been really fun. I have three guests, so actually exactly what we're doing here, except so around a table, and they tell me what their favorite restaurants are in the city. They send the other guests, and then we come back and talk about them. But it's a range of places, something you might never have heard of. So it's really fun to send people on little, um, you know, joyrides to to find a new place I might not have tried otherwise.
0: Uh, Louis, what's next for you, and uh, and does what's next uh, include another possible run for office anytime <laughs> down the road? I, well, I hope some someday that, to get a chance to
3: serve again, uh, although I, I'm in higher education, I feel like I'm serving I'm serving now. Uh, I actually have been very involved with a group that I helped create called the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration. And it's college and university presidents across the country who've come together, one to advocate for dreamers. Uh, I mean, these are kids who really were raised as American kids, have always thought of themselves as American kids, and then they come of age and realize I'm not. Actually, a citizen, and to try to solve the the, the challenge that they that they have. Long term, this group is also really very focused on how do we serve immigrant students, whether they're documented or undocumented, better in this country, and international students, because the U.S. benefits when the brightest people in the world want to come here to be educated. Some of them who stay, you know, more than half of the sixty-eight percent of. Uh, PhD students in computer sciences are international students. So they're high in demand by all our technology companies mm-hmm. to attract the, the, the best and brightest, bring them here, educate them, and then keep them. Right. Don't, don't uh, lose them to uh, other countries uh, that want to compete with us. Uh, and so that story about the benefit of immigration to our country, uh, the benefit of education, And uh, uh, for uh, students, whether they're documented or undocumented, and increasing uh, access, affordability, and completion uh, by uh, the the young people for whom that is hardest, those are the things that I'm focused on.
0: And what does your gut tell you in terms of where we'll come out on this issue of DREAMers, particularly, and immigration in general? It feels to me like such a fateful question in terms of the direction that our country Will will evolve into just as a lifelong activists on this. What's what's your yeah. gut tell you? Are we going to come out in the right place?
3: So so long-term, long-term, yes, because <laughs> lo, because the dynamics will change, and in fact, the growing diversity of this country will become more politically active, and they're going to say, I don't fear people who come from places where I came from because I know I'm a, <laughs> I'm I'm a contributing American who's just trying to raise a family and right. do the best I can just like everybody else. And uh, uh, But in the short-term, in fact, we're seeing. Uh, for example, that uh, U.S. Uh, saw a decrease in number of applicants from international students uh, and enrollments. Uh, that's not that's not a that's not a good thing, right? So sh- over the short term, the messages are very mixed. Uh, and by and by the way, Canada is com- competing in artificial intelligence. Ottawa, number one. You know, they're one of the top places in the world. So if you're a super super smart person from you know Africa or India or somewhere. Uh, we want them to come to the US. We don't want them to say my number one choice is to go to you know England or France or Canada or somewhere else. Um, so you know that's a, a very important story that we have to tell.
0: You both tell your stories really well. Thank you for being with us. Louis Caldera, former Secretary of the Army, former President of the University of New Mexico, former California State Assemblyman and future uh, political leader, it <laughs> sounds like, we hope. Uh, thanks hope. for being with us.
3: Thanks, Billy, thanks, Debbie.
0: Uh, and Rose Previtt. Uh, Medan, uh, Compass Rose and Check Please DC, which everyone's got to watch for on Channel 26, WETA. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you guys for having us. Great show. And
0: Debbie Shore, wonderful. Thanks. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.